It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Hey, it's Friday, and that means we got a whole lot of stuff to get to here on the podcast. Mike Pence getting the vaccine, a majorly screw-up by the New York Times, and I am not exaggerating. Uh, Stephen Colbert making some news with Joe Biden. And the fact that it's Friday also means that I'm crashing on Media Buzz to uh, update the segments, add, subtract, move things around. It's like a shell game. you got 60 minutes. You want to put this over here. Let's make this a little shorter. Let's make this a little longer. Hope you'll get a chance to watch Sunday, 11 Eastern. There's the plug. Um, I start with a, a small bit of good news for the media business because this is an era, especially with the coronavirus, where so many newspapers are cutting back, laying off, uh, stopping their print editions or only delivering the paper uh, two, three times a week. Washington Post uh, plans to add more than 150 jobs to its newsroom next year, which would bring the total newsroom to over 1,000. The, the post has never been that high. Even in the, in the heyday of the newspaper business in the 80s and 90s, um, you know, everybody talks about the New York Times versus Washington Post competition, but the Times is a much bigger paper, which has always had, you know, 1,300, 1,400 uh, journalists or around that figure in its newsroom. Uh, anyway, the reason the Post can spend this extra money under Jeff Bezos uh, is that digital subscriptions, which is a really important revenue stream now in the era where um, not as many people get the printed edition of the paper and there's not as much valuable print advertising, digital subscriptions have tripled since 2016 to nearly 3 million. Now, let's see, what happened in 2016? Oh, yes, right, Donald Trump. Uh, So does that kind of growth continue in the post-Trump era? That's an interesting question. You know, I just watched the video I'm just about to talk about, and it is even more horrifying than the the write-ups would suggest and that I can convey to you on this podcast. It's just a horrible situation in Chicago. Uh, Here's a write-up in the New York Post, by the way. Um, So last year... There was a botched police raid. This seems to happen with too much frequency. Um, in which a woman named Anjanette Young, her home was raided by police. And she had just gotten home from work. And she talks about this uh, in the uh, on the CBS station in Chicago, which got a hold of the police body cam footage. That's what's new about this. And she had just gotten home from work and she was taking off her clothes and she's standing there naked and all of these cops come running in, search warrant, and it's just total bedlam. And they just let her stand there naked. They don't give her a chance to put in any clothes. Uh, they reach for handcuffs. And it turns out they've got the wrong person. Just horrible. Uh, and the footage is just chilling. Uh, and the reason this is, again, news, not just because the uh, footage was just aired, but the mayor of Chicago, Lori Lightfoot, um, said the other day that she only learned of the this raid, this horribly wrong, wrongful raid, uh, this week. However, she's now acknowledging that she first heard about this case involving Anjanette Young last, not last November, yeah, last November 2019, more than a year ago. It was flagged for me, Mayor Lightfoot said. So I, how come she didn't do anything about it? Uh, oh, she had no recollection of being told about the case, except that she was. I'm just telling you, this would be a hard thing to forget. On this video, this woman, Anjanette, tells the police, and there's a whole bunch of police treating her like, you know, she's some dangerous threat. She tells them 43 times that they're in the wrong home. Nonetheless, the raid continues. She's handcuffed, no clothes on. Absolute embarrassment to the city of Chicago. All right, let's get down to business, folks. Here's story... Number one. 
So, you know, every day I talk a little bit about the Congress's negotiating this stimulus package and finally it's, you know, both sides look like they're going to do it. Except, you know, with the Hill, it's never over until the ink is dry. And there's always these last minute snags and it's going on and on. I was really fired up about this. I went on Fox News yesterday on Bill Hammer's show. And we were talking about Joe Biden and coverage and other things. And I said, I just want to talk about this uh, stimulus package because it is a disgrace this has gone on for a while, about three months now, and both the Republicans and the Democrats have been playing politics, pointing figures, posturing, and haven't come together with a package. Uh, while millions of Americans have been watching the, their uh, unemployment benefits run out, the special uh, unemployment benefits that were added because of the pandemic, when businesses are going to go out, are going to have to put up a close sign because they can't get this aid. And the, the outlines of this compromise have been clear all along. There just wasn't the political will to do it. Now, of course, uh, members of Congress don't want to go home at Christmas time empty-handed. And even Mitch McConnell is saying, you know, it'll hurt our Republican candidates in Georgia if we don't pass a bill. But anyway, the Washington Post has an exclusive story saying that White House aides had to intervene to prevent President Trump from putting out a statement or a tweet or whatever calling for much larger stimulus payments for millions of Americans, according to two people who spoke on condition of anonymity, blah, blah, blah. So uh, on a phone call uh, yesterday afternoon, the president told allies that he believes the stimulus payments in the next relief package should be at least $1,200 a person, maybe even as big as $2,000 per person. Uh, but what Congress is agreed on as part of this compromise is only $600 a person. Now, on the substance of it, I happen to agree with President Trump. I think $600 is too low. It's only that because the Republicans wanted zero. The Democrats wanted $1,200, and so they compromised on $600. At least it's something, but it ain't that much if you're trying to feed a family, right? Per person, I should add. Um, but the president was told here, White House officials told him that if he would make this demand, he would imperil the delicate negotiations and could blow the whole thing up. And also that with the, the whole total price tag would go from $900 billion, which is the compromise figure, to over $1 trillion, which is a, a kind of a deal breaker for the Republicans. Now, I bring this up for several reasons. One is this has been the pattern all along, which is the president lets the um, congressional negotiations unfold. And then sort of at the 11th hour, he comes and says, no, I want this. And it's not that a president shouldn't be able to do that, but it does tend to upset the apple cart. And even here on, in this particular instance, I agree with President Trump. More money should be spent. But if he wanted more money, he could have gotten involved. I know he has Steve Mnuchin talking to Nancy Pelosi, but he could have made that a marker. Maybe there was no deal that could have been gotten. Because on a number of issues, people forget him. I mean, of course, President Trump is a Republican. But he really ran as in almost like an independent. I mean, I've said this many times. In 2016, when he ran against Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio and Jeb Bush and all the rest, I mean, he wasn't a classic movement conservative, small government conservative. He was a guy who believed, you know, didn't care that much about shrinking the size of government, believed in spending money on things he thought was important, whether it was a wall, whether it was Defense Department, and in some cases, and protecting Medicare and Medicaid, which the more fiscally-minded GOP members want to rein in because ultimately it could bankrupt the, the country, could bankrupt the government. But he said, look, people put money into the program in the case of Medicare, and they deserve to have that protected. 
Um, but the thing is, you know, you, you can't come charging in at the last minute because Congress, these compromises are so delicate and they have so many pieces to them. Otherwise, you know, you lose one or two members and the thing blows up and everybody gets zero. So the president was persuaded. He didn't call for the larger payments. His only public comment, stimulus talks looking very good. Uh, said one person who heard the exchange, the aides were really frantic saying, we can't do this. It will blow up negotiations. And it does show you, uh, remember, the original stimulus package from last March, uh, it was a $2 trillion bill, $1,200 stimulus checks, checks to more than 100 million Americans. And then there was this little flap because Trump kind of prodded Steve Mnuchin into putting his name on the checks. Not Mnuchin's name, Trump's name, of course. Um, McConnell put out his own plan uh, some weeks ago that contained zero stimulus checks. So at least the Democrats have gotten Mitch and company to $600. President at the last minute says, oh, I want $1,200 or even $2,000. But, you know, it just doesn't work that way. And there's a lot of instances where the president has blown up things because he decided he wanted his way. But you got to get in there. Maybe not at the beginning. You want to let Congress sort of come up with a framework because otherwise you could just be endlessly spinning your wheels. But once it gets down to, you know, before the final round of negotiations begin, if a president has a priority, that's the time, whether he does it personally or through the vice president, through his treasury secretary in this instance, you got to get in there and be part of the action. Now, I can't help but notice that most of the president's focus, most of his public comments, and by far the majority of his tweets have been about the disputed election. One can understand why looking of, uh, we're just about a month out now from January 20th, why that's very much on Donald Trump's mind. But, you know, in a way, he could have gotten credit for this. It could have been, you know, his final act in office to get lots of money to people who need it. Um, but I don't think, he, I don't know if he could have gotten the Republican Party to go along as what even Mitch McConnell now acknowledges, he's a lame duck president. Nevertheless, interesting that this would leak. When you say it on a phone call, obviously, um, some people are going to tell that to reporters. Okay, story number two. So it was live television about 8 Eastern this morning. And there's uh, Mike Pence just wearing sort of a regular shirt, rolled up sleeve, wearing a black mask. And he gets the coronavirus vaccine on live television. All the networks carried it. And he gave a little speech and he said, I didn't feel a thing. Well done. Uh, I guess it was the Surgeon General that gave him the shot. Um, Surgeon General Jerome Adams also received the vaccine and uh, Pence's wife, Karen, got the uh, vaccine as well. So as the New York Times points out on Friday morning, this kind of ties in my first segment. President Trump was not promoting Pence's event, which his aides had asked all the television networks to carry it live. Now, why they asked him to carry it live? Well, one, showing Mike Pence, who is the head of the coronavirus task force, getting the, the shot is a way of branding this as something that the Trump administration accomplished. Operation Warp Speed. But the president, his mind was elsewhere. What he was tweeting about one minute before the Pence event began, which he didn't mention on Twitter, the Russia hoax becomes an even bigger lie. So he just, his, his thoughts were elsewhere. Uh, I think it's fair for the Times to point out that Pence got this shot as he encourages other Americans to follow suit six months after he wrote this opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal. I remember thinking at the time, this will not age well. The headline was, there isn't a coronavirus second wave, Pence wrote in the journal. And the Times also points out that this week, uh, the vice president hosted a holiday party at his residence in which guests mingled in an outdoor tent, that's at least it was outdoors, posed for pictures without masks 
according to attendees. Now, Joe Biden is supposed to get the shot next week. Originally, Biden was saying, well, you know, I don't want to get too far out there because we've got to get the first responders, the frontline workers, and the people uh, in nursing homes. And I understand that sentiment. But he's going to be the president of the United States. He and Kamala Harris, of course, should get the vaccine early. He's 78 years old. I don't know what he was thinking. I mean, I guess he kind of got talked into it. And of course, we need to protect the current president and VP and the incoming president and VP. Uh, I don't think anybody, in fairness, is going to criticize that. Oh, by the way, Jimmy Kimmel told a really bad joke. Well, I don't think Pence should have gotten this vaccine. All he should have gotten was, you know, a bowl of Clorox. Um, Not in very good taste. I know he's a comedian, but not in very good taste. But this comes at a time when the vaccine, going back to this journal piece, no second wave. I mean, man, things are out of control. Uh, Another record was shattered um, this week. More than almost 3,600 deaths in a single day. Uh, Yesterday was 238,000 new cases. So at that rate, you're getting a million new cases, not even a week, but every four or five days. Uh, if that, even if that's a slightly larger than the average, slightly higher number. So we are in the, you know, and this is what a lot of the Fauci and the other experts, Fauci was there at this Pence event, by the way, today, were saying about Thanksgiving, if too many people just go and, you know, ignore the experts' advice and travel and sit with their families, there's going to be a spike in cases and in the death toll in two or three weeks. And that's where we are, mid-December, December 18th today. And those numbers keep going up. And I think I, I bring this up because, you know, it's one week to Christmas. And we, you know, I don't want people not to be able to celebrate Christmas with their families, of course. But we are in the middle of a pandemic. Um, by the way, I have said repeatedly that while President Trump made plenty of mistakes, which I have talked about going back to February in the handling of COVID-19, he deserves credit for Operation Warp Speed. But now there are some problems, and it's fair to point that out. Washington Post Uh, has a piece saying that officials in a number of states were told um, on Wednesday that their second shipments of the Pfizer vaccine, by the way, the FDA advisory committee just approved the Moderna vaccine. I'm sure the full FDA will follow suit, what, in the next 24 hours? And that will probably about double the number of doses that are able to get out there. But the states were told, or a lot of states were told, that we're cutting, drastically cutting, your allotment for next week. And there was a lot of confusion about this. Uh, and health departments across the country, uh, senior administration official, I can't really follow this explanation, telling the Washington Post. Um, this is because states are requesting an expedited timeline to lock in their allocations, but um, you got to do it by Tuesday, and they want, it, they, they want it on Friday. I don't know. It didn't make much sense to me. But here's a statement from Pfizer, which tells you what's happening here. Pfizer put out a statement yesterday that says, let's just say it contradicts the administration's official explanation, saying the company doesn't have any production problems. In fact, here's the quote, we have millions more doses sitting in our warehouse, but as of now, we have not received any shipment instructions for additional doses. So how can that be, right? Middle of a pandemic, um, more than 3,000 people a day dying. Pfizer comes up with this miracle vaccine in a record amount of time, And it's got these doses, millions of doses, sitting in a warehouse, and the administration can't get it together with the states to say, okay, get these out tomorrow, here's for the next day, here's what we want next week. I mean, it's one thing if you have production difficulties, 
and you can't manufacture enough of these. And there was, you know, Pfizer gave the administration the chance to order another 100 million doses on top of the 100 million doses it already would be getting. And obviously it takes time to make and distribute those and to get them into the arms of Americans who need this vaccine. Remember, you need two vaccines per person to be fully effective. So I don't understand how these are sitting in a warehouse. And on that point alone, Operation Warp Speed has hit a snag. Now, will all this probably be worked out in a few days? I certainly hope so. You certainly hope so. But uh, can't completely praise the administration when you have that kind of screw-up. And that's what it is, a screw-up. There's no other way to talk about it. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzBeater coming your way in just a moment. Story number three. Well, Joe Biden has finally been asked on the air about the federal tax investigation of his son, Hunter Biden. And who asked the question? Stephen Colbert. So I've noted the last couple of press conferences, none of the journalists uh, who Biden has called on, and he, he gets to pick who he calls on, have asked a single question, especially in the few days since the Biden transition office put out that statement. Hunter saying, yes, I did nothing wrong, but I've been notified that the Justice Department is conducting a criminal investigation of my taxes. And there were other things like money laundering allegations that don't seem to be going anywhere, at least at the moment. So what happened is there was a bit of a flap here late yesterday because, you know, Colbert tapes his show and he's got this pre-tape with Biden. And by the way, he's a big fan of Joe Biden. And he interviewed Joe Biden back in 2015. I think he was the first to interview him after his son Bo died. It was a very touching interview. So Colbert, obviously not a fan of Donald Trump. That's how he got to be number one in the late night wars. So to his credit, Colbert brings it up. But when the CBS Evening News played uh, an excerpt from the interview to promote its show later at night, 1130, I mean, that's a standard thing that everybody does. The edited version played uh, by Nora O'Donnell didn't include Colbert's question, just had Biden's answer. And what Biden said in the clip is, I'm not concerned about any accusations that have been made against him, Hunter. It's used to get to me. I think it's kind of foul play. So lots of people just running around with their hair on fire saying, oh my God, Joe Biden just called the Justice Department criminal investigation of his son foul play. He's saying it shouldn't, shouldn't happen. It's, it's politically motivated. But that's not what he was saying. Because when you see the full clip, you see the question from Colbert. And the CBS Late Show host says, you know that the people who want to make hay in Washington are going to try to use your adult son as a cudgel against you. And that's when Biden says, I, we have great confidence in our son. He's there with his wife. I am not concerned about any accusations being made against him. It's used to get me. I think it's kind of foul play. So he's talking about the flack and the criticism that he's getting from conservatives, from Republicans. Now, you can agree or disagree, but that's very different than calling the investigation itself foul play. Um, and in fact, spokesman for the Biden transition team quickly put the transcript out after that CBS News Evening News broadcast to show exactly what question Biden was responding to. And I think that's fair. Just to give you a sense of the interview, Biden also called his son Hunter, the smartest man I know in pure intellectual capacity. As long as he's good, we're good. Now, this doesn't solve the issue by any means. Absolutely not. And look, Stephen Colbert who happens to be on the cover of the new Vanity Fair, very um, glowing piece. And the reason he's on the cover of Vanity Fair is because he's been the leader of the late night resistance. 
I mean, you know, when he took over, he was having trouble finding his footing. You know, he had been the Comedy Central guy. And I know Colbert. I've interviewed him a few times. I was once on his Comedy Central show. He was a very talented performer. you got to say that. And very liberal. So he was kind of struggling. And then, you know, Donald Trump starts getting traction in the campaign. And Colbert just goes all political, all anti-Trump. And he passes Jimmy Fallon. And he passes Jimmy Kimmel. And he's got the number one show. And I remember saying at the time, like, you know, he's going to get rid of all the, he's going to chase away all the people who might think Colbert is funny, but have a different political point of view. But what happened is everybody on television got more political, so he found his audience. Uh, and, of course, he's been like the others, like the two Jimmys, he's been doing the show, and, and the Vanity Fair piece talks about this, uh, from his home, first in South Carolina, and then... Uh, more recently in the New York area. Uh, and how he talked about how, you know, much of an adjustment is to him because, you know, he performers are used to live audiences. You tell a joke, people laugh. Now he's just got his wife there and, and maybe she chuckles and if she doesn't, he figures, okay, that one bombed. Uh, but my point is that um, Colbert despises Trump, admires Biden, and, and, and he, he framed it in such a way that, you know, what about, he didn't, could have asked him, well, what, are you worried about the investigation? It's a criminal investigation of your son. Instead, it's about your opponents using it as a cudgel against you. But at least Stephen Colbert asked the question. It got on CBS. We see what Biden's answer is. And for that, I guess he deserves a little bit of credit because he could have just, you know, had a good time, right? Uh, and talked about all the great things Biden's going to do and so forth. One of the footnotes to this is that um, Jill Biden, he asked Jill Biden about the doctor controversy. You know, you should, your Wall Street Journal op-ed says, can't call yourself Dr. Biden, you only have a doctorate in education. And she said she was really surprised by that. And she talked about how she, she has two master's degrees and then she worked to get the PhD. And she talked about how hard she worked to get those degrees. Um, I know there's a debate about this. I just don't see why it should focus on Jill Biden when there are lots and lots and lots of men, frankly, you know, Dr. Phil, Dr. Kissinger, Dr. King, Dr. Doom. All right, he's a Marvel villain. Uh, related note here, John Harris in Politico has a piece about Biden maybe being too soft. Uh, he says, look, Joe, uh, he says Donald Trump, he would sort of, sort of act crazy because it was a way of uh, pleasing his supporters and, and pressuring rebels in his own party into submission. Why can't Joe Biden create a cult of personality? Well, Harris says there's two reasons. One is... Biden doesn't, have, Biden doesn't have that sort of outsized leadership personality. Secondly, he's got an, an instinct for cult-like compliance isn't part of the Democratic Party character or tradition. And that's true, too. So here's the problem. During the transition, says John Harris, Biden often seems as if someone put a kick-me sign on the back of his suit jacket. Uh, the transition has seen pre several prominent Democrats openly carping about Biden's process and several of his decisions. It risks creating a dangerous dynamic for the incoming president. Biden's peril is that he is sending the message that there's not really a penalty for publicly pressuring him and is likely a benefit. In the national context, any president should wish to project a leadership vision that transcends party. So it's really true in the sense that when Biden has talked about, well, you're being pressured to hire an African-American for this job or a Latino for this job, or, um, you know, he just named... Um, a member of Congress who's a Native American to be the interior secretary. Uh, and maybe that's a great idea. But when people criticize Biden, Biden says, well, that's, that's their job. The activists should cr criticize me because their job is to push me. And, and, and the political piece says, well, you know, maybe that projects self-confidence, not weakness, not to be hypersensitive in the way that a certain other incumbent president is. But 
it could easily become a bigger deal, uh, says Politico, than Biden wants. You know, Biden wants to pass an agenda on pandemic rescue, climate change, expanding government's role in health care. And he's got a very narrow House majority, and it'll probably have a Senate uh, Republican majority, or at the best, a tie that have to be broken by Vice President Harris. That's hard to do under any circumstances. So if he's being pushed and pulled in too many directions uh, by his own party, then it's hard to be a strong president. You know, he's not president yet. We'll see what happens. By the way, it's Congresswoman Deb Holland uh, of New Mexico, who was picked to serve as the first Native American cabinet secretary of any kind to run the Interior Department. Um, Washington Post says, by the way, this, I got to read you this Washington Post headline because he also named this somebody to EPA. With historic picks at Interior and EPA, Biden puts environmental justice front and center. That's the headline on the news story. And, and you know, the story is fine. It talks about Deb Haaland, H-A-A-L-A-N-D, and it talks about uh, the new EPA administrator is uh, Michael Regan. He's an environmental regulator in North Carolina. First black man to head the EPA, by the way. And he also named a woman as the first black chair of the White House Council on Environmental Quality. So you can say, look, but the thing is, when, when Democratic presidents name people who are strong environmental regulators or strong environmentalists, the media chair, because that's what the media want. There is another side to this debate, which is you, that overregulation hurts business. That's generally the Republican view. That's the Republican presidents tend to name business people or those who are not from the environmental movement. You can agree, you can disagree. But this Washington Post headline puts environmental justice front and center. I mean, it almost like it needs, um, you know, a, a symphony orchestra, to clashing cymbals, Joe Biden, front and center. I just think it's, you know, the kind of thing that a lot of media people take for granted. Uh, but that was a really puffy headline. Again, the story was fine. The headline, not so much. And finally, I teased at the top, New York Times. This is serious business, folks. Um, the New York Times has now had to retract uh, a hit podcast series that it had back in 2018. The series was called Caliphate. And it was about uh, a Canadian guy who joined ISIS, who became a member of the Islamic State, who supposedly participated in executions, and then he left ISIS, and he was kind of a defector, and he was the, at the heart of this podcast series. He talked to the New York Times. After doing an internal review, the New York Times has now acknowledged that there were serious, serious problems with the credibility of this supposed ISIS defector. Now, here's Dean Mackay, the executive editor of the New York Times, telling NPR in an interview, we fell in love with the fact that we had gotten a member of ISIS who would describe his life in the caliphate and would describe his crimes. I think we were so in love with it that when we saw evidence that maybe he was a fabulist, when we saw evidence that he was making some of it up, we didn't listen hard enough. Well, good for Dean Baquet because the Times does not only have his own story retracting this, but he does an interview with NPR. He also did an interview with... Uh, his own uh, podcast uh, that's supposed to go up today. He blamed newsroom leaders, including himself. Because, you know, when you're the top guy, you say, well, you know, these other people, they weren't careful enough. Uh, he said that the, that the whole thing should have been scrutinized in a much more aggressive fashion by the upper levels of the newsroom. Quote, back, hey, we did not do that in this case. And I think that I or somebody else should have provided the same kind of scrutiny because it was a big, ambitious 
piece of journalism, a big, ambitious piece of journalism. And I did not provide that kind of scrutiny, nor did my top deputies with deep experience in examining investigative reporting. Now, why did all this happen? Because back in September, Canadian authorities uh, arrested this guy. His name is Chowdhury. And they charged him with perpetrating a terrorist hoax. So since that happened at the end of September, and the Times put an editor's note on this saying a history of misrepresentations by Chowdhury, no corroboration that he committed the atrocities he described in the Caliphate podcast, did not meet our standards for accuracy, you think? So because the Canadians arrested this guy and said basically he makes stuff up, the New York Times conducted its own investigation. It took a while. You know, you, know, you want to get it right. And this is the Biggest time screw-up in a long time. Uh, I mean, it's almost on a par with Jason Blair's story, you know, of, of serial fabrication and plagiarism that I exposed back in 2003. Uh, this is bad stuff. I do want to say the New York Times did the right thing. Never should have allowed this to be broadcast or published. Did the right thing in owning up to its mistakes and in not pushing off the blame on some, you know, C-level editor. Dean McKay said, I should have done a better job. We should have done a better job. And the Times should have done a better job. And guess who loves it? Donald Trump, who says, oh, they do this to me all the time in a post on Twitter. Well, we got the weekend coming up. I hope you have some good plans. Hope you'll find time for Media Buzz Sunday at 11, or at least watch the segments online. Hope also you will subscribe to our podcast here. And as I've been saying all week, you can do it on Amazon Music or Spotify or Apple iTunes. You can leave us a comment there as well. We'll see you back here Monday with more BuzzFeed. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.